Hi, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. This is an interview with Dr. Cordelia Fine, an eminent academic researcher and writer. The book is entitled Delusions of Gender, the Real Science Behind Sex Differences. Uh, this is the description of the book. I hope that you will read it. I found it incredibly powerful and illuminating. Delusions of Gender is a vehement attack on the latest pseudoscientific claims about the differences between the sexes. Sex discrimination is supposedly a distant memory, yet popular books, magazines, and even scientific articles increasingly defend inequalities by citing immutable biological differences between the male and female brain. That's the reason, we're told, why there are so few women in science and engineering and so few men in the laundry room. Different brains are just better suited to different things. Drawing on the latest research in developmental psychology, neuroscience, and social psychology, Delusions of Gender powerfully rebuts these claims, showing how old myths dressed up in new scientific finery are helping to perpetuate the sexist status quo. It reveals the mind's remarkable plasticity, shows how profoundly culture influences the way we think about ourselves, and ultimately exposes just how much we consider hardwired is actually malleable. This startling original and witty book shows the surprising extent to which boys and girls, men and women, are made, and not born, empowering us to break free of the supposed predestination of our sex chromosomes. Hi everybody, it's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I have on the line the inestimable Dr. Cordelia Fine, uh, who is the author of a book that has just been released called Delusions of Gender. The Real Science Between Sex Differences, and she's also the author of A Mind of Its Own, highly recommended as well. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Fine, uh, for taking the time to have a chat. That's my pleasure. So when you talk about the real science between sex differences, um, I I'm surprised you, you seem sort of very generous as to how your book dives into the analysis of that science, which seems to be the really bad science between uh, sex differences. And it really is quite chilling to see or to read about the amount of bad science that is going on in the supposed biological basis for gender differences. Was that a surprise for you as you began to explore the topic, or did you know that going in? No, no, it was, uh, it was a very great surprise to me. Um, I mean, what initially motivated me to write the book was actually experience I had as a parent rather than a researcher, which is that I, was, I tend to read a lot of parenting books. I'm a voracious reader of them. And one of the books that I read as a parent claimed that hardwired sex differences mean that boys and girls should be parented and taught differently. And I thought that was, uh, that was really interesting. And, but then when I looked up the actual neuroscientific study on which that claim was based, I realized there was this extraordinary gap between what the study showed and uh, what was being claimed from it. And when I started to look at other popular books about gender, I saw that neuroscientific data were being misused in very similar kinds of way, um, ways. So really my initial motivation was just to alert people to the fact that you know these old-fashioned gender stereotypes were being dressed up in neuroscientific finery and just to remind people not to be so enthralled with brain imaging that they, um, that they forgot about the importance of social factors. But then when I started to look more closely at the scientific literature, I sort of took it for granted that, you know, that, that there were data out there that, that showed that there were sort of, you know, differences between the brains that had importance and, and um, you know, uh, prenatal hormonal influences and so on and so forth. 
And, and as I started to uh, look at this literature, it, it appeared very solid from a distance, but when you started to look at it more closely, you sort of just realize all these sort of gaps and flaws and inconsistencies and so on. And, and I found myself very surprised by just how little really concrete evidence there was for the idea that there is such a thing as a, as a male brain hardwired to be good at understanding the world and a female brain hardwired to understand people. And so, you know, really the, the book did shift at that point. Um, of course, I was still interested, uh, and I still think it's incredibly important how this work gets popularized uh, and, 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 you know, completely overblown and exaggerated um, to, to the point that it just becomes, you know, basically fiction. <laughs> um, but, but then my aim for the book really became to explain uh, this much more complex and actually much more interesting picture of the state of the science in a way that will be accessible to everyone. Um, but yes, I, I did. I, I did come in. I, I was surprised. I, I don't come from a um, you know a background in critical studies or feminist studies or women's studies. Um, and you know, I came to realise during the course of the writing of the book that this has been going on for centuries. There's nothing new about neuroscientific information being um, premature conclusions being drawn from it or biases being built into the research and so on and so forth. But uh, I, I was sort of quite naive going in, so it was. It was a it was a shock. Yeah. And one of the things I thought was very interesting that you I think elucidated very well in the book was how difficult it is to do any kind of meaningful tests on babies. In other words, the amount of biases that need to be scrubbed out of the process. This seems like there's such an enormous challenge, and so many of the studies that you cited completely bypass these. So, for instance, I think you mentioned that uh, one of the studies that is cited quite regularly, uh, the 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 children were not put forward in gender-neutral clothing, which could have some effect on how the researchers are, are treating them, that there was a lot of things that I think you say is fairly standard practice when trying to do these kinds of tests on babies that simply weren't there, which have a huge impact on the outcomes. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, as I came to realize, just methods are absolutely critical in this, this area of research. And... I think the newborn study is, is a good example and, and I would acknowledge that this kind of work is incredibly hard hard to do. I mean when when you when you compare the newborn study to a sort of to a, a study of newborns that, that did go to all the efforts to put to put all the to, to eliminate as much as they possibly could the potential biases from, you know, people responding to the baby unconsciously in a way that was influenced by the knowledge of what sex they were. I mean, it, it's an incredibly hard task, and I do acknowledge just how difficult and time-consuming and effortful this research is. But I think that it is uh, really very important that these limit, when, when there are these methodological limitations in these studies, that they are explicitly acknowledged. Uh, and and it's very worrisome to me that that uh, a result from that kind of study that does have a number of methodological flaws can then just be you know just spread throughout the popular literature and presented in such a way that you know it looks as if science has shown that you know boy babies are hardwired to be interested in things and girl babies are hardwired to be interested in people. Right, and I, I mean one of the reasons I appreciated having a chance to to read this book was. Uh, I sort of vowed to myself not to, uh, or to try as, as hard as possible, given all the limitations that we have from our own histories, to not impose gender on, on my daughter. And I've been waiting for 20 months for gender to show up, uh, because I think like most people, you don't have the, the, the capacity to, to drive into the literature in the way that you did. So 
I accept that the world is round, though I haven't seen it from space. I accept that the sun and the moon are different sizes, though I haven't done the, the maths. I just assume some things based on the experts around me. But I, uh, I was somewhat skeptical, though not entirely skeptical. So I was sort of a, of a wait and see approach, like, okay, so I'm not going to impose gender stuff, even though everyone has said to me and the literature seems to say that it's built in. I'm just going to wait for it to see how it shows up or when it shows up. And uh, so far, as my daughter's 20 months, as I said, it, it hasn't shown up at all in any particular way that I can find. And uh, uh, mm. but, but you do see it all over the place when you're parenting. I don't know if you had this experience as well, but uh, people impose these kinds of things all the, times in, in, all the time in their parenting. And since reading your book, I've been trying to talk to other parents when I see this coming up, like this assumption that, you know, girls when they're younger are just smarter and boys are kind of dumb and, and uh, uh, that, you know, <laughs> girls are more cuddly and, and boys, all they want to do is throw dinosaurs at each other and, you know, put their heads through walls and stuff like that. So, so uh, it really has been incredibly illuminating. And this is one of the reasons uh, I was, uh, I actually contacted you about another book, but when you sent this one to me, I, I dove in with great ferocity because it's such a powerful and important topic gender I, because in reading your book I sort of looked at myself and my history and said well if I pull gender out of my identity what's left it seems like a little bit of a, it seems like a little bit of a house of cards and I think that's probably quite challenging for people well that's right and I, and I think what's interesting is that that's especially I mean I'm sure that's not true in your case but uh, I think it is it is actually true with with children so uh, you know they have one social identity which is that they're children as opposed to adults and then they have um, the most prominent gender identity which uh, sorry social identity which is that they're you know a girl or, or a boy and they don't have many other social identities to draw on as a whole and I think pe probably people um, very much underestimate uh, what kind of impact this might have because you know babies are born into this world in which sex is the most important social division. It's the most obvious social division. It's continually emphasised. I mean, particularly in children's worlds, which are, you know are very much dichotomised, sort of pink in a pink blue way. And it's a world which is absolutely saturated with information about what goes with being female and and what goes with being uh, male. And you know, of course, and, and all us parents, whether we like it or not, we do have a head full of assumptions and expectations about gender regardless of whether we, we do endorse them, and I actually think most people do. And uh, I think we haven't really taken seriously enough how this contributes to the, the what are the really very subtle sex differences that are uh, evident in infancy. And then once you, once children know what, what side of this very important gender divide they fall on, I mean, all bets are off, really. You can't rear children in this kind of strongly gendered environment and not expect it to influence them and motivate them quite powerfully uh, once they know what side of the gender divide they belong. And and I really did have similar experiences to you, and it's interesting that you mention my first book, A Mind of Its Own, but, you know, which I talk about how our, our social perception is sort of shaped to some extent by the, the, the social stereotypes that we hold. And despite having, having written that book, I, I was amazed as, as a parent to see the sort of contortions that people would sometimes go through to see their children uh, as their behaviour as being consistent with gender, gender stereotypes, which of course sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't. I mean, uh, one example that always comes to mind is when we were uh, interviewing a, a babysitter and for, she was with us for about half an hour and for the sort of first 29 minutes that she was with us, I think one of, one of my children was just sitting very quietly by the fire, colouring in. I have two sons, I should say. So one, so one son was sort of very quietly colouring in by the fire and the other son was just lolling against his dad, just not doing anything. And then minute 30, 
the one who was lolling against my dad sort of climbed up onto the arm of the sofa and leapt off it. And the babysitter sort of immediately said, oh, boys, they're just like space <laughs> explosive rockets or something like that. Because right, that's 3% <laughs> so of her experience. Of, so that's what you've got to generalize, right? <laughs> right. So, you know, the, the, the 29 minutes of counter stereotypic information was just ignored. And then the sort of one moment of... Um, consistent with stereotype was sort of filed away and, and, and but you know I, I think these uh, part of it is that these gender stereotypes you know they're part of our cultural law and so there's a, a you know an immediate understanding between people when you when you sort of trade in stereotypes which I think to some extent um, uh, contributes to it I mean that's why advertisers of course use like to use gender stereotyping because you know, there's a there's this huge store of mutual understanding to to draw on, and I think that's probably the case in in um, in general conversations as well. It's not as if that parents are just you know so blind that they don't understand the sort of nuances and and subtleties and and you know they don't. Nobody thinks that their child is you know just a pure stereotype, but I think that it's easier to communicate about them in, in those ways, I think. Right, and I, I think it's a, something you talk about a little later in the book, which I, I think is very chilling and true, is the degree to which peer socialization reinforces these. So even if you're a parent who doesn't want to uh, socialize or, or, I guess, gender imprint your child, there is that challenge. I, I was reminded, I was uh, this last summer, I was, uh, I was talking at a, a conference, and uh, there was a a little boy there whose hair was, you know, down to his sort of mid-back, which I get, and his mom said, well, that's the way he likes it. And watching this little boy run around, I mean, part of me was, was full of admiration for this, this mother allowing her child to express himself in this way. And part of me was thinking, how high is he going to be hoisted by his own underwear in the schoolyard, you know, when he goes back to school with his hair this long? Because there is that feeling like you want your children to be individuals, but they do have to kind of fit into society. And society as a whole has this gender approach that, that really is the last great bastion of prejudice and stereotypes. As you point out, we wouldn't allow this in any other sphere. We wouldn't be allowed to say, well, blacks are like this and Chinese people are like that without people's jaws dropping in any civilized discourse. But it, it is so common to, to have this kind of this imprinting and stereotyping. So if you don't do it, um, there is that fear, I guess, that the people have that if you allow your son to play with boy uh, with, with with dolls, or just to take a stereotypical example, that he's mm, going to be you know yeah. set upon by the wild boys of the clan in this uh, Lord of the Flies sort of situation when he <laughs> when he gets uh, into a social situation. Yeah, I, mean, I think, uh, and, and I think to some extent, those fears are. Uh, justified. I mean, the you know, psychologists talk about jeer pressure so children <laughs> right. do get, um, you know, jeered at for particularly for for boys to to cross down, so to speak. It's it's easier for girls to cross up because you know what's associated with males is sort of higher status, and what's associated with with females, which I think is an, you know really another quite sad indictment of our, our 21st century that that's that's still the case. And yes, it is as as a parent, it is very difficult because you know you don't want to endorse gender stereotypes but you also want your children to fit into the world and 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 to be and to be happy um so it is it, and you know I, I described the uh the efforts made by sandra and daryl ben who who really went to the extraordinary lengths to try and avoid their two children acquiring the cultural correlates, as she called it, of gender. And, and uh, I think it's probably an effort that's never been matched before or since uh, the, the, the lengths that they they went to. And there was an acknowledgement that it was, it, it was difficult for her children to sort of find their way in the world without using gender as part of their identity. As you said before, it is such a 
a huge component of who we are that if you sort of eliminate it as a legitimate part of your identity then that, that makes things that makes things very difficult. And and I think we need to perhaps acknowledge a bit more that the pressures that children are under. I, I um I took my son to school at, uh, one day and he was he often likes to read on the way to school. He's a bit of a bookworm and he was reading a book called Jennifer's Diary, so it was about a girl and it had a pink cover and a picture of the girl in the front and you know <laughs> there was a lot about the book that said this book is for girls. And as we approached the school gates he sort of, you know, he, he put the book down, he looked at the cover and, and he said to me, Mum, do you think people at school might think this is a book for girls? And and I looked at it and I said, Well, look, I think I think it I think they might. It's you know, they probably will, but you know, it's it's a book that was written for boys and girls and it would be a shame to for, for boys to miss out on reading it just because of, you know, what colour the cover was and so on and so forth. So you know, but I said, but if you want me to take it back home with me, then I, then I, then I will. But you know, he was very brave, and he just popped it into his bag and and ran off. And and I was very, very proud of him. But you know, he was he was aware that there was an there was an element of danger <laughs> to being seen uh, reading that book. And and um, I think you know we probably need to be a bit more aware of of uh, you know the the gender the gender borders that, that are in place and, and how difficult they can be for children to cross. I think you just need to make sure that you keep your G.I. Joe covers handy in your purse so that you can just flip them on the book when he gets close. It looks very much. <laughs> uh, I, was, uh, I was very actually quite sad to read. Uh, it, it's something I've, I've, I've thought of and I've talked about it with my wife, but I didn't really get it, I think, to the degree that you talk about it uh, in this book, the degree to which, I'm trying to remember how you phrased it and correct me if I've gone astray, it's something like um, men are people but women are women. And that showed up when there was gender neutral uh, animals or, or characters in stories that they were generally interpreted to be uh, male. Uh, and so unless it was, mm -hmm. uh, unless a character was explicitly identified as a female, the default position was male. And you mentioned earlier, just as we were talking, the degree to which uh, the, the woman's side of things is considered lesser or inferior. And I think one example of that that you cite in the book is that there is a word for a tomboy but there's no country, there's no sort of counter word for uh, a boy who has quote uh, feminine uh, qualities or aspects. That well, there is a word, but it's a sort of the sissy or or whatever, right? Yeah, the, the sissy, right? Yeah. Whereas tomboy, yeah. it, it has quite often has sort of positive. Con I mean, I'm thinking of Scout mm -hmm. and To Kill a Mockingbird or other sorts of characters which have sort of tomboy qualities. And of course, thinking about this in terms of my daughter, that's very sad that she may be entering into a world where the female perspective or the female approach is considered to be lesser or inferior. Uh, so it's not even gender differences. It really is a gender inequality, I think, that you're talking about. No, that's absolutely right. And and, and like you, I, I did find that one of the more depressing aspects of, of the book. And I, in, in a sense, I think it's almost self-perpetuating. I mean, if you, if you see, uh, you know, for example, you think about the underrepresentation of female characters in movies for children, for example, I mean, I think a lot of this, and also, you know, characters in books is a lot of this is probably driven by this perception, which is to some extent correct, that you know, girls will feel free to show an interest in male characters, but but boys won't reciprocate, so they won't want to watch a film that has a, a female as a, a main character, and, and in a sense, it's almost self-perpetuating because then you sort of have males appearing more often, and then they you know increases their visibility and their importance and so on, and 
and, and so it goes on to so this sort of self-perpetuating aspect to it. And then, of course, once you reach adulthood, it continues in, in, in the sense that uh, professions that are dominated by women and that, that are, involve greater amounts of sort of more traditionally feminine qualities tend to be lower status and uh, lower paid. And, and just in general, as women tend to move into greater numbers in professions, the salaries do tend to go down. So it's, you know, it's just sort of a very pervasive effect that uh, can have, uh, you know, quite substantial economic implications apart from apart from anything else so yes it is uh, it is sad that you know we, we think of ourselves as being a very egalitarian society now but you know even from the earliest ages there is still this ambivalence uh, in parents you know you, you see parents as you as you mentioned you know sort of limiting boys access in particular to sort of more feminine toys and so on and and, and then just it just continues throughout throughout life there yeah there, there's two examples that popped into my mind one was when you talked about the language that was used to describe uh, the the male characters versus the female characters in children's books that the male characters were you know strong and ferocious and courageous and all of these sort of bulked up words and then the female characters mm. were nice and gentle and frightened and dependent and so on it, it seems to have this this language around gender seems to be oh the other one was was the birth notices that there was a lot seemed to be a lot more sort of pride and positivity and so on uh, for for boys as opposed to girls being born that it's almost like masculinity is something that that strengthens you and and femininity is something that weakens you and that that just strikes me as as so I mean it's not even 19th century it, it seems like even further back then. I mean, I think we have to go to the Stone Age to find that. But is that is that an accurate way of of looking at what you're putting forward? Uh, it just it struck me that that masculinity just seems to be something which empowers, and femininity seems to be something that you have to kind of have in your life that you have to limit your exposure to because it's gonna I don't know enervate you or something. Does that does that make any sense? <laughs> Uh, well, look, I, I think it's, um, it's just a, ge a general thing that that, um, that what is feminine is somehow lower status, and uh, and 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 I am fully behind these um, sort of pushes to, to to place more value on traditionally feminine values and occupations and so on and so forth. But uh, I, I do feel that until we get over this idea that well, those are, you know, literally feminine things or until we have, you know, complete gender equality, um, it, it's it's never going to be quite successful because it's going to be detrimental to people to display those kinds of qualities because they're associated with with lower status. And the, and the problem for, for women is that when they do display these, the kinds of masculine traits that they need to display in order to express their high status and their power, there's actually a backlash against them so it's not just these gender stereotypes aren't just descriptive I'm not saying well this is what women are like but they're actually uh, in some regards prescriptive so women should be nice they shouldn't be assertive and ambitious and, and overconfident and and you see that again and again in, in controlled laboratory studies women being penalized for showing these these male traits so I think there's a real issue one one is it's, there's an obstacle to women showing the traits that you know sometimes are necessary in certain kinds of professions and leadership roles, but also I think it's 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 an obstacle to perhaps making uh, these places 
you know, very powerful roles a bit more feminine in a way that they probably could benefit from being because the feminine is, is seen as being lower status. I mean, I, what was interesting to me, when I, you know, one of the things that also changed throughout the process of writing the book was um, I thought, oh, you know, I'll have a chapter at the end saying, well, here's what we should do about <laughs> all these things, you know. And, you know, by the time I reached the end of my book, I was like, oh, sunk in gloom. It was just all seemed too intractable chapter to me. The idea that I, you know, I might just be able to come up with a five-point bullet plan for <laughs> eradicating gender inequality and stereotyping from the world just was just quite comical in a tragic kind of way. So, uh, I don't, yeah, I don't know what the answers are. But, um, yeah, it is, it is dispiriting. I wanted to ask you what... Well, it's, it's two questions. Uh, the, the first is that it seems counterintuitive to say the least, and I've really noticed this as, as a, a stay-at-home dad, right? So of course I'm uh, taking my daughter everywhere, and it's it's hard to not notice the fact that I'm very often the only guy in the room, or at the library, or or, or at the mall, or at the play center, or whatever. So it's it's strange and seems counterintuitive that the gender that raises the children, for want of a better word, and I know that's not a universal statement, but that's certainly what I've experienced, uh, that the gender that raises the children is the gender that ends up uh, as a sort of lower caste, so to speak. Uh, because, I mean, you'd, you'd think that the first thing they would do is say, well, this is really important and men and women are equal, or, or maybe even women are superior or something, because that, that would seem to me to be more intuitive. Uh, how do you think it works out that, that uh, with such a strong representation of women, raising children that there's still uh, this, this negative or, I guess, uh, lesser view of, of women's capacities and value? Uh, well, that, that's an interesting question. I, I suppose, uh, I suppose you're, so you're asking, you know, given that the child is having so much contact generally with women, that women would be betraying a much more, um, you know, weird... Well, actually, sorry, um, let me answer that a different way. I, I think... Um, Probably, uh, what seems to happen is that, that there's a there is a, a positive representation of women, and that women are, are seen seen as being nicer than men. Um, and, and it was interesting. One of the you know one of the studies I talk about in the book uh, points out that even in the first few months of life, I think about three or four months of age, um, babies who are reared by Mothers are showing already showing a preference for female faces, whereas this sort of small group of babies that they managed to find who were being you know sort of raised primarily by their fathers actually showed a preference for male faces. And I think this idea that women are nicer is um, uh, quite quite well instilled from an early age and, and continues. You know, women are uh, nice but weak, whereas men are bad but bold. But I think in terms of why. Uh, you still have this difference in status. I, I think probably if you just look around the. Uh, you have to look, take it from the, the wider society as a whole. So children will, will look, well, perhaps even look within the family to see who seems to have the decision-making power in their family, for example, in the families of the, of, of the world around them, who, who, who is predominantly in positions of power in, in society at large, whose faces it tends to be on, on the newspaper and on the news, and, and who who is most often represented in books and films and so on and so forth. So I, I think perhaps that 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 provides uh, some kind of answer to your question. There was this um, very interesting study by developmental psychologist Rebecca Bigler who was interested in how children perceived the value and importance of what women do and what men do. And she noticed that even by the age of about 11 or 12, when she she gave sort of very unfamiliar 
jobs showed men and women doing these very unfamiliar jobs like higgling, things that children would never have heard of. And, you know, she sort of randomly assigned them to being performed by males and females. She found that even by this quite young age, uh, children thought that what men were doing, you know, was more important, more skilled and, and better paid than, than what women were doing. So uh, I think from these cues in, in the world around, children are still very effectively picking up this message, even though, of course, no one's explicitly saying what men does is more important and more valuable and so on. And the fact that it's implicit, uh, I think, is even more powerful for children. I was really struck by the study around, uh, uh, if I remember rightly, it was uh, moms who um, uh, were interacting with somebody from a different race. And no matter what they said, it was the body language that the children picked up on. That's one of the great challenges of parenting is your language skills don't matter, <laughs> fundamentally. Uh, you, I mean, no matter how expressive and sophisticated we are in our communication skills, the only thing that my daughter cares about is what I actually believe, in a sense, with my body, like how I act. Uh, it doesn't matter what I say. You know, I, I can baffle Gab with the best of them adults, but when it comes to kids, you really are kind of stripped down to your raw beliefs. And uh, I think uh, that has a lot to do with it, too, uh, how the, the mom is treated by the dad. That Not, not what they say, but what, what actually goes on in the power dynamic is probably translated down because children just seem to learn so much through body language that uh, it really is something to, to remember, that it's just not as simple as changing your language. It really is around changing your whole belief system. That's right, which is yeah, easier, also easier said than, than done. So. And the, the last question I'd really like to ask you is... Um, uh, I'm, I'm very interested in economics, so I always think about things in terms of supply and demand in this kind of environment. So when you look at the real misuse and misrepresentation of scientific studies that themselves could be accused of a fair amount of misrepresentation, so the people in the general population who are you know, economically or, or scientifically literate to, to some degree, they get this impression that this is sort of a settled science, you know, that there are these brain differences and uh, it's you know, hormonal. Or I love that example you have of the, I think, a three and a half year old girl who the mom tried to, to give her trucks and all these sort of male, quote, male toys and uh, gave up and said, oh, it's just gender and it's hormones when she came on and found her daughter cuddling and putting to bed the truck and, and tucking it in and so on until somebody asked, well, who is it that puts the girl to bed? And it was the mom, right? So she was imitating the mom. But what do you think is driving the demand for this kind of uh, amplified prejudice? I don't really know a nicer way to put it. Why do you think people are so hungry for getting the scientific validation of these gender stereotypes? Well, I think to some extent the uh, the answer is you know in the in the way that you express the question. So that, you know it is validating the stereotypes. And and I, what I find interest, find interesting is that uh, people who take the kind of sceptical view that that I now do. Uh, and you know of course this is what, what I came to realise when I was writing the book was rather depressingly that you know this book has been written many times in the past and it will be written again many times in the future because you know the science keeps changing and then the science goes on the scrap heap and then there's a new you know justification and explanation for, for, for gender equality and again that will join the scrap heap and so on and so forth it just keeps going on uh, but what I find interesting is that you know always the the accusation is well you know you just want to believe that you know there aren't any hardwired differences that can explain these things and and I actually find this psychologically a little bit unconvincing because I, I think it would actually be a lot more comfortable in a way to believe that there were hardwired sex differences that did explain why there is still so much gender 
inequality. And then we could put our, our, our efforts into, you know, raising the status of what is traditionally feminine and feminine careers and professions and, and so on and so forth, which I think, you know, is a very worth, worthwhile thing to do. But I actually just don't happen to to, to believe in, in the supposed scientific explanations. And, you know, social psychologists have identified what they call the system justification motive. So we do have this sort of psychological need to feel that there is some fairness in the world, that the status quo is natural and fair and somehow inevitable. I think when people were debating about whether women should get the vote, it was probably a lot more comfortable to think that there was something about their, you know, the brain stem that meant that it probably wasn't a terribly good idea for women to be part of the political process rather than just think, well, you know, sorry, just being grossly unfair and discriminatory here. And I think in a similar way, when we think about how much gender inequality there still is even in our western you know re- you know relatively egalitarian societies i think it's very uncomfortable to think there isn't actually any reason for it other than conscious and unconscious sexism and and the complex interaction of way these way these things all all work together to maintain the status quo so i think part of the appeal of these books that sort of trade in hardwired sex differences is that they 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 give us a they let us off the hook you know we don't have to look to ourselves and to our society anymore we can just we can just blame the brain um, and I think in the case of perhaps of educational books um, perhaps they just sort of offer simple answers to what are actually very complex questions um, you know why is it that um, you know, particular groups of boys aren't performing well. Um, I think if you look at it at a whole, it, you, it's probably a very complex picture to do with uh, social forces that are going to be very, very difficult to uh, to deal with. But if you can just say, oh, it's to do with boys' brains and girls' brains, you can offer a sort of very simple explanation that seems to offer a, potentially offer some kind of quick fix. Um, but I think primarily, primarily the appeal of these books is as I say, that in a sense they they um they can they can let us all relax and go, okay, look, it's not it's not sexism, it's not prejudice, it's not it's not me. You know, a combination <laughs> of it's not yeah. me. <laughs> I'm not part of it. Uh it's it's fair, it's natural, it's inevitable, there's nothing we can do about it. Let's focus our minds on something else. Yeah, it is it is a great tragedy of human society that for every moral progress, every moral progression that a society has, people feel, well, we've now reached that shiny city on the hill and there's nothing more to do. And everybody sort of drops exhausted like they've swum in from four miles out to sea. Uh, and it is, I think some people feel like, oh, there's more to do. Oh, that's exhausting. And, you know, that means examining my own beliefs and my own history and, and changing. And uh, there does seem to be a sort of change exhaustion or growth anxiety that sets in. I don't know. I'm just armchair analyzing from, from a great distance. But uh, you do sort of see this. And, and then a new generation comes along sometimes that says, well, yeah, there's more, more, more hills to climb, more places to go in terms of making the world a better place. So uh, I really, uh, I just also wanted to just end with, with a real pitch for the book. Uh, I, I mean, I, I read a lot, I interview a lot, I've talked to some, some very um, great uh, uh, psychologists and writers, and this book is fantastic. I mean, I, it's one of the few books that has just blown my mind. 
I mean, that just, it's not, not a very technical way of putting it and not a very highfalutin phrase, but uh, it has caused me to just, you open up your brain and, and, and you look at what makes your identity up and what, you know, there's obviously gender is not, is not something I've thought about a huge amount, which may have something to do with my gender, but uh, certainly um, uh, being, being a father and, and being a husband, it's, it's becoming more and more important to me. And uh, it is something that, that, you know, it, it, it's a courageous book in, in my mind. I think also it's, it's a delightfully written book and a very, very well-written book. Your, your passion really shines through. Uh, your humor in the face of what is obviously a whole series of, of somewhat um, non-elevating information, <laughs> if I can put it that way. Uh, your, your good humor, uh, this is a laugh-out-loud book at times. Uh, I particularly enjoyed, uh, I actually did startle my daughter, uh, but when I was reading this, um, when you were talking about how fathers uh, and mothers, when they were asked, do you want boys or girls in interviews, the fathers were all like, well, I want boys so I can get them to play sports and, 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 and climb things and, and run and so on. And you said, well, space aliens reading this might be led to believe that baby girls are born without limbs because they just don't think of, of them actually being able to do these kinds of things. And uh, so I, I just really, I mean, the, the content is, is completely fascinating. The, the deconstruction of this shaky pseudoscience and Lord knows science has had a long and sorry history of trying to find personality and identity in biology. Uh, your deconstruction of the science is fantastic. The writing style is beautiful. The, the humor is, and, and the good humor to plow through this and to, to come out with such a positive book. I know you said at the end, it's like, oh, you know, but uh, <laughs> I really didn't find that. I, I find that for me, uh, you know, when, when the rubble is blasted away, I get the energy to start sprinting. And to have that rubble of pseudoscience, uh, I think, very powerfully blasted away, to me, gives a very clear avenue for moving forward and, and frees me up from it even unconsciously, which is going to inevitably happen based on your beliefs from unconsciously imposing stuff uh, on my daughter and just allowing her to explore her own identity and to try and catch myself when this stuff comes up and to really see it as I have really, it's like a huge light's been turned on for me reading this book and watching other parents uh, interact and I've had great conversations with my wife about it. So and if you're a parent, uh, if you're thinking of becoming a parent, if you have parents, then I really, really strongly <laughs> recommend that, uh, that, that the people read this book. I, I just, I really can't recommend it highly enough. And I really, really do appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I know we had a bit of a back. Two creative people trying to organize something is sometimes <laughs> akin to watching a barrel of monkeys rolling down a hill. But uh, I really do appreciate you taking the time to write the book. I found it enormously liberating and encouraging. So I hope that uh, you get more feedback that way because uh, I, I just found it a great, great, powerful read. Oh, thank you so much. Those are, those are lovely comments. I appreciate that. And uh, have yourself a great, uh, a great time. And uh, if you get a chance, uh, I'd love to have you back uh, at some point to talk a little bit more about how uh, socializing with your sons has gone. Uh, we can compare notes about how uh, the genderless female of my loins is going into the world. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, that, that, would be, that would be great. Thank, thank you so much. And best yeah. of luck with the book. Yeah, thanks, Stefan.